In your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 12. We'll take up where we left off this morning. Revelation chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse number 7. Revelation 12 and verse number 7 and down to the end of the chapter, verse 17. Tonight, I think we could well call this message from these verses, War in the Heaven and Hell on Earth. War in Heaven and Hell on Earth. We begin at verse 7 of Revelation 12, and the verses read in this fashion and, uh, and declare to us, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ or his anointed. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, three and one half years from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The phrase, and there was war in the heaven, seems almost a paradox. Of all of the places you would think of as being without war, you would think that heaven would have no kind of trace or mention of war in that place. As a result of the strangeness of that statement, there have been many who have tried to simply explain away what this verse tells us about the war, the conflict in heaven. But yet I think you can, as well as I see, that the words are absolutely too plain and too evident for us to say that it means other than what is declared. In fact, you don't have to read but one other line in verse number 7 to realize why there was war or will be war in heaven. Only one other line where the scripture tells us that the dragon and his angels fought, were in conflict with Michael and his angels. Now, the word dragon, of course, we identified this morning, as is very clearly seen in these verses, is a symbol of Satan, the adversary, the enemy. And certainly I think that goes without any further explanation. The Bible explains itself as far as that goes here. The devil is identified in many, by many different names throughout the Word of God. He is called indeed Satan, uh, the old, that old serpent, he is referred to as the dragon. He is called the deceiver. 
He is called the accuser of the brethren. He is called Lucifer, the bright and the shining one. Many such names are given to the adversary, the devil that you and I face from day to day. But what is he doing in heaven? That's the question. How in the world did he ever get there to start with? Somebody said, I thought he was kicked out a long time ago. And yet here in a prophetic vision that John reveals in sign and symbol, uh, he shows us that this war is yet in the future. Undoubtedly, these verses that are here in chapter 12, are they cover much of what has already been suggested uh, by the sounding of the seven trumpets of judgment. What is the devil doing in heaven? First of all, let me say he does not reside there. He does not reside in heaven. Furthermore, he does not reside in the hell. Somebody said, you know, the devil's in hell. I beg your pardon. Uh, he is not there. Somebody said, well, the devil's chained in this age of the church. And my only reply to that is, if he's chained, he's got a mighty long chain on him. But the truth is, he is not chained. He is rather in the atmosphere along with his demon hordes surrounding this very world of ours. I read you this morning from Ephesians 2 and verse 2 where the, the devil is designed as the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Jesus described him as the prince of this world. And often when you read in the Bible about principalities and powers as Paul did, he is referring to that uh, darkened host of Satan and his emissaries uh, who indeed are in uh, the atmosphere about this very world. I think if you turn to the book of Job in chapter 1, you might get a better understanding of the, uh, the presence of Satan here in the heaven. In the book of Job, in the very first chapter, you'll find, beginning at verse number 6, these words recorded, ancient words, and they, re they read like this. Follow me carefully. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, As thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God, and is Jewish, or hateth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said that Job feared God for naught. Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. He will abandon you. He will forget you. In other words, Satan is here accusing Job before the throne of God and his accusation was this. Job is only serving you because you've blessed him materially. Now, oftentimes as the devil accuses us before the father, he, though he is a liar, he doesn't have to accuse us often with lies. He accuses us often with truth. That is the truth about ourselves. And yet here he is accusing Job before God that he is only serving the Lord for what he gets out of it. The devil said, Lord, if you'll put your hand on him and take away from him his health, uh, take away from him his wealth, take away from him those things that he's living for, I'll tell you, he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord gave Satan permission to afflict Job and to put him under this very, very severe trial. And so we find here from this first chapter of the book of Job that Satan is now or has access to the throne, access into the presence of God, if you please, and his purpose in doing so is to bring accusation against the children of God. 
So there is war in heaven. There is a conflict in heaven. And I might add this. Satan is the instigator of war. Satan is the instigator of war. Now, there have been innocent countries and nations that have had to go to war, but because the devil instigated through selfishness, through lust, through ambition, through even insanity, an encroachment upon the sovereignty of other nations, and as a result, there had to come a defense of those or that country as a reason of the devil stirring lust and desire and having a lust for greater power and greater possession. So indeed Satan is the instigator of war. And not only that, but over in the book of James, James gives us actually two other reasons for war. In the fourth chapter of the book of James, turn if you will quickly, the book of James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. And here James gives us these two other reasons and he says it in these words. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts, that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. So James gives us two other reasons here that men are often brought into conflict even on this earth. Number one is because of the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, that is the desire of the flesh to have more, to have one's own way, and so forth. The lust of the flesh. The second reason that he gives is the loss of faith. The loss of faith. And James went on to say it like this. You have not because you ask not. You try to fulfill the lust of your flesh, it's impossible. And the reason you do not have is you've lost faith in God. If there is a need in your life, listen, you won't get it through strife. You won't get it through bickering. You will not get it through hostilities. You will not get it in that way. The desire of your heart will not be fulfilled. But as men and women express faith in God, God said, you'll have if you learn to ask. And so oftentimes men try to work out the struggles in life, family situations, community situations, national, international situations, and there is a loss of faith in God. In other words, we fail to present our petition to him and knowing and believing that he can give that that indeed we ask for. So before us in the 11 verses of this this particular section we read, I want you to pay particular note to seven things that make up this passage of the scripture. Seven things that are needful to be noted. First of all, notice with me the personages as far as this conflict in heaven is concerned. The scripture has said, as we've already noted, that conflict is between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angel. Now, angels, now, uh, here uh, is, uh, is Michael presented to us. Uh, few angels are given names in the scripture. I think right off the top of my head of three. I think of Michael. I think of Gabriel. I think of Lucifer. You see, Lucifer himself was an angel, a guardian angel at the very throne of God. But he fell from that lofty estate and that glorious position as a result of the pride of his heart. And I would remind you and me tonight that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Beware of the element of pride and that simply means the resistance of our will to the will of God. And when we fall into that trap of pride, then you can mark it down, a fall is sure to come. When we resist by thought, by deed, by conduct, the will of God, then the Lord says, you're coming for a fall. Now, Michael is an archangel, a high angel. Now, in the Bible, you'll discover this about the, about the angels. God has an order in the rank of angels. One indeed is important as the other in the eyes of God, but they're given different roles to fill. And so God is a God of order. 
He is not a God of disorder. You'll find that that's so true in the touch of God in everything, in the creation, in the universe, the solar system. God has an order for that. He has an order for this world of ours. He has an order for the personal life, Christ at the center, and our lives revolving around him. He has an order for the family, and he instituted that order. Husband, the head of the family, the, the, the uh, manager of the family, the wife in cooperation with him, leading that family in humble, loving submission to his leadership. And the children are obedient to their parent. That's God's order. Now watch this. When you, fail, when you fool with God's order, you're inviting disaster. You're inviting disaster in the world. You're inviting disaster in the solar system. You're inviting disaster in the church, in the family, in any area. God has an order. And so he has an order revealed in relation to the angel. The archangel seems to be the high angel. If we could use it in reference, uh, the, the position of general, if you like to liken it to that of an army. Under the general, the commanding general, there are different ranks of soldiers who are in subjection to and under the leadership of that high-ranking officer. You'll find in the Bible the mention of cherubims. These cherubims seem to be guardians of the throne of God. Lucifer apparently was a, a, a cherub, a guardian angel at the throne of God. There are seraphims or as some pronounce it, seraphim and cherubim. But nonetheless, the seraphim are guardians, apparently, of God's holiness. They relate to the holiness of God. You remember the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and heard the angels, the seraphim, crying those cries of holy, holy, holy. They're guardians of the holiness of God. And then according to Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 13 and 14, there are ministering angels, angels who minister to God's inheritance, and that's you and me who are saved. Uh, they are watchful over the flock of God. Angels observe us. Angels watch for us. Uh, uh, angels protect us. And uh, how grateful I am for God's host. You know, I think if tonight really, if God could give us eyes, spiritual eyes, to see literally what's taking place all around us. Number one, I think, first, we'd probably be frightened. For I think what we would see, first of all, would be what the servant of Elisha saw down in the village of Dothan when he looked out and saw the enemy encamped around him. But as you look beyond that, you see a greater host than that servant of Elisha saw, the army, the host of, the, of God, encircling even the enemy, protecting the man of God and his servant. And I think after we've had our fright, after seeing that enemy host, demonic host, the spiritual uh, fallen angels, I think as you look a little farther, I think you'd instead of being afraid, you'd be shouting. I dare say if God give you a glimpse of the provision he's made for you personally, for your family, and for your life, I guarantee you, I, I don't think you could stand on the ground. I think every man and woman in this house would lose all the dignity you've ever had, and you'd be like Lucille was yesterday, running up and down and hooping and hollering over the victory of the kids at the Bible quiz. Uh, I, you know, uh, that wouldn't disturb me in the least. Doesn't bother me. I was up in Minneapolis, Minnesota at a great church up there, robe, choir, pipe, organ, all that stuff. And a dear lady came up after a certain, she said, Brother Burl, I'll declare. She said, while you was preaching, I just wanted to get up and shout. She said, would that bother you? I said, ma'am, as loud a mouth as I got, you, I probably wouldn't even hear you. Help yourself. Go to it. And ah, how we need to even realize that God is providing angels ministering to us. Uh, there is, uh, as I said, the archangel Michael, uh, who is uh, as a commanding uh, general. Now, let me mention this about Michael. The angel, the archangel Michael, is when you find mention of him uh, in the scripture, you will find that the mention of Michael is always in association with Israel, in association with the people of God. And uh, jot the verses down, if you'd like. J Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Also, verse 21. Also, you'll find Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. We'll come back and read that in just a second. 
And then also in Jude, verse 9, several times, the angel Michael is mentioned by name. I'd like to turn back to Daniel chapter 12 just a moment and give you a glimpse of Daniel, uh, of Michael here. And here Daniel in his prophecy is talking about the great tribulation period. And he is saying at verse number one only, here's only verse one, watch this. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Talking about Daniel's people, the Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered every one that shall be found written in the book. Now how fitting that very verse of scripture is with what we've read over here in Revelation chapter 12. The archangel Michael in his conflict with, uh, uh, with uh, Satan and his uh, angels. Uh, yet also in relation to the woman who is a symbol of Israel as we saw. And Michael here is seen as he watches over and guards uh, God's people. The, Michael, by the way, is a warrior kind of angel. Uh, you'll find that Gabriel... Uh, another uh, uh, an angel is more given to the uh, delivering of messages. Uh, it was this angel, Gabriel, who announced uh, the beautiful birth of our Lord Jesus. And yet again, uh, we're considering not Gabriel, but, but Michael. All right, watch, if you will, then, not only the personages, but notice the place where this great war is taking place. Now, the Bible says that indeed there was war in heaven. I want you to understand th this. In the scripture, there are, there is presented three heavens. That doesn't mean like the Mormon church teaches that depending on how many children you have, you can go to the first heaven, second heaven, or third heaven. If that's the case, uh, I know Pat is, is going to go to the third. But anyway, uh, with as many as we got, but what I'm trying to say is that is a fallacy. It is not, it's an erroneous teaching. But yet there is the mention of a first, a second, a third heaven in the scripture. Uh, for example, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 2, you remember this? Paul said he was caught up into the third heaven. We said by simple logical deduction, if there's a third, there's a first and a second. And so Paul said he was caught up in the third heaven, heard things, saw things that were not lawful or permissible for him to even reveal. Back in Genesis 1 and verse 1, the verse says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the plural. God created the heavens and the earth. Now let me just simply mention this. The first heaven I think that we refer to is what may be considered the atmospheric heavens. Uh, when you look up, you say, I'm looking up to heaven. Uh, but you do not, uh, well, in other words, we talk about this atmospheric heaven uh, where, you and, where birds fly and so forth. Uh, there is yet a second that we would consider and call the stellar heavens. The stellar heavens, where we look up in the heavens and say, look at the stars up in the heavens. Look at the moon, the sun, look, look up there in the heaven. And indeed, we have a, it is perfectly right to refer to that as heaven. But Paul said he was caught way above the realm where birds fly and the air is breathable. And he said, beyond the stars into the third heaven, which indeed is the heaven of heavens, the dwelling place of God. And it is this heaven that John saw in that vision and saw the temple opened and saw in that temple the Ark of the Covenant I talked to you about the other Sunday night. So here it is in this realm in the presence of God where this conflict occurs. Not just in the upper atmosphere or up among the stars, but in the very heaven of heavens there is conflict, there is war. So wherever you find Satan, you can mark this down, you're going to find conflict. You're going to find conflict. I mentioned to you to pray for the church in Pennsylvania. There's people very dear to my heart, and I've been there numerous times of great influence. And I was talking to one of the men last night on the phone for such a long time, and I said, Jack, I want you to understand this. 
Anytime you have conflict, you can trace it back to one dirty, low-down rascal, and that's a devil. That's a devil. Now, he, sometimes he, he gets in human beings, and sometimes he don't have to mess with human beings if that particular human being doesn't have things under control in his own life and his own emotions, his own thinking, and so forth. But the devil, wherever you find him, you're going to find conflict. You're going to find war. So there's the place. Now, thirdly, of the seventh eight, look at the purpose. Why is this conflict in heaven? Look at verse number 10, first of all, at the latter part of the verse, and you find there that, uh, of, of our text, Revelation 12, you'll find there that the devil has been there accusing the brethren both day and night. Now, the immediate context of that statement refers to the Jewish brethren, the Jewish brethren, the immediate context. But there is another application that I think is perfectly right and legitimate, and that is no doubt the devil accuses the saints of this age in the same way. He accuses you and me as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the devil is very quick to point out in my life and in your life those things that he would suppose would get us in the disfavor of God. One thing the devil doesn't understand. He doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand that at all. And uh, many of the religions that he has fostered uh, don't understand it either. I'm glad, listen, one reason I'm a Baptist is because of the emphasis on the grace of God. The grace of God. And you can't go anywhere in the Bible without finding that. But nonetheless, here the accusation is brought against the Jewish believer as well as the saints of no doubt this present age. And right now, tonight, I imagine they're pointing out a few spots and wrinkles and and, uh, torn places in every one of our lives. And that is one reason why the Bible reveals the advocate work of the Lord Jesus. He is our advocate. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, remember this? My little children, I write unto you that you sin not. But he said, if a man sin, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, our Lord Jesus is not a prosecuting attorney. He is an advocate. He stands on the side of those who know him, who love him, who are saved. Now, the devil may come up to the heavenly father and say, look down there at old Walterboro. You see that terrible feeling he had and that terrible word he said, that terrible deed that he did. And uh, what are you going to do about that? Uh, he claims to be one of yours. Oh, you better charge him with that sin and with the wrong and that wrinkle and that blotch in his life, that thing that he did, said or did not do or did not say. Oh, he's not much of a child if he is your child. And I think the advocate says, Father, would you mind just opening the book? And he opens the book, and sure enough, he says, uh, do you see his name in that Lamb's book of life? And the recording angel must say, Heavenly Father, it's there in bold red letters. Walter Burl, A. Burl. And I don't believe the angel wrote out what that A means in my name. But my name's there. I know my name is there, written in the Lamb's book of life. And yet again, the devil said, yeah, what about all those sins in his life? Man alive, he's piled up a debt this high. Uh, Look at that. And the advocate says, Father, uh, I have already paid those debts. Everything canceled. Uh, You see, I've had everything put on my account. And that's exactly what the Lord does for us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, John said, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So the devil may have a sad and terrible tale to tell on every man and woman and young person alive in this house. But I'm glad to tell you that we have an advocate who stands for us in the presence of God as well as that accuser stands. Now Satan has shown up in verse number nine for what he really is. That old deceiver. The word deceiver means leading astray. And all how the devil leads men and women astray. Leads them after their own lust, their own way, their own will, their wishes. Leads them into false doctrine, false religion, all kind of things. He is the one who deceiveth the whole world. 
Oh, if it were not for the Word of God and the sweet ministry of the Holy Spirit of the believer's life, you'd be deceived too. And the only thing that keeps you from being deceived is the Word of God. Oh, how many people have fallen into the false philosophies of this day and are, have been led astray and uh, deceived in their lives and how many people I've even heard thank God for their testimonies who have been so engrossed in things like the occult and, and uh, uh, witchcraft and black magic and Satanism and they thought man my heart was empty and I thought if I'd go after this I'd find a fulfillment in life and yet to hear them say it brought disaster in my life but thank God for his mercy who rest, that rescued me and brought me and fulfilled and brought satisfaction in my heart. I'm glad, though he's the deceiver, we have one who can lead us from that deception. Now, look at verse 9 also. The Bible says here, related to the purpose, Satan is cast out into the earth. Now you read a few times in the Bible about Satan's fall or the casting out of Satan. There are three specific times that I want to call your attention to. And uh, you know the old familiar saying, three strikes and you're out. And that's exactly what's happened. That's, that's exactly what John's showing us here. In fact, in this passage, the devil's up at the batter's box for the last go-round. He's standing there, and I'm going to tell you something. Uh, he's going to strike out. Thank God for that. The three strikes. I want you to look, first of all, how the devil was cast out from his position. You see, he was an exalted angel, as I mentioned a moment ago, a, a guardian at the throne of God. Lucifer, the son of the morning. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12, begins by saying, How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? And goes on down in that set, those following verses to reveal the pride of his heart. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. Five different times the expression of this fallen angel. And because of that, he fell from that lofty position. Now, there are many who believe that between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2, that between verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 is the very po po possible place where Satan had that first casting out, made his first strike. And I, and I have a tendency to accept that uh, for, for this simple reason. Verse 1 of Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know that God does not create that which is imperfect. So he did not create an imperfect world. But the world, verse 2, watch this, of Genesis 1. And the world was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, the word was in the, in the Hebrew language is, is a verb. Uh, uh, the word really is translated not only was, but became. And I think you'll find that that is the sense of it. And the earth became without form and void. Back again to what I said. God does not create imperfection. God is a perfect God and his creation is perfect. So I believe in Genesis 1-1 we have a perfect world. But in Genesis 1-2 you have an imperfect world. Void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And from other indications of Scripture, I think we gather that this was the, the, the reason for the earth uh, having this kind of cataclysmic judgment upon it was as a result of the fall of Satan initially. In Jeremiah 4, verse 23, let me ask you to take a note of this and look at it quickly. And I, I don't want to hang around here too long. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, uh, if you will, and verse 23. And the verse reads like this. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form, Hebrew word became without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities there were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger." Then if you will look to Isaiah 24 just quickly. 
Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 1. I'll give you these verses to give you something to think about tonight. Isaiah 24 and verse number 1. And the verse reads like this. I can get it right quickly. And it says, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, void, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. One other verse I need to give you. Look in chapter 45 of Isaiah at verse 18. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 45 verse 18. And the verse reads like this. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. And the word vain means wreck. Corresponding to the word void in Genesis 1 and verse 2. He created it not in vain or wreck. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Now, what I'm saying is simply this. I believe that's strike one for the devil. Uh, he, is, he is cast down from his position. Now, a second thing I want you to remember. In the book of John chapter 12, chapter 12 of John, verse 31 32 and 33. Look at this if you, if you are, are gifted at turning right quickly. In John chapter 12 and verse 31 and 33, Jesus now said, as he is, as he is considering his death and so forth, now, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judge of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. In other words, here in view of the death of our Lord Jesus, I believe you'll find what Jesus is saying, the devil is cast out from his power. In other words, Jesus, when he died on the cross, you remember, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And the writer in the Hebrew letter writes in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, and talks about the power of Satan who had the power of death. And that Jesus by his death destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is, he cast him out. He stripped him of his power. First, he is cast out from his position. Secondly, from his power. But thirdly, here in Revelation 12, 9, he is cast out of God's presence. For the last time, the dirty, low-down rascal will appear in God's presence and accuse the brethren. The Lord said he'll, he is cast out. There is no more access. Ultimately, though he awaits now the entrance into the eternal penitentiary, he will be cast into the lake of fire and forever and forever banished from the presence of God and his believing children. Three strikes and you're out. And that's exactly what I think you'll find here. And then look at verse 10. Hang on quickly, hang on carefully with me. Verse 10, you'll find the praise, the praise. And John says now in, in 12, uh, Revelation 12 and verse number 10, uh, here the note of praise is heard uh, to resound throughout heaven. And he says, verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accused of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Notice what they said. Now is salvation. Now has come salvation. They said, what do you mean now has come salvation? At that time, I thought when a fellow asked Jesus, are you saved? Yes, he is. Let me explain something. You remember over in Romans 13, verse 11, Paul said, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Well, I thought you were saved when you believe. You are. But I need to explain something to you. Salvation or redemption as presented in the Word of God in its broadest sense affects three realms. Salvation affects the soul, the body, and this earth. When Jesus died on the cross, purchased our redemption, it involved these realms. Romans 10, 13 said, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When a man asks the Lord Jesus and sincerely in his heart, believes on the Lord Jesus, asks him to be a Savior, the Lord saves his soul. He becomes a child of God. 
But you see, his salvation that God has provided, that is, God's salvation is not complete just when he saves the soul. The body itself is included in God's plan of redemptive salvation. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 19 through down about verse 23, Paul talks about this great creation, and the word is creature in that, in our English version is literally, and you'll see in the marginal reference, is the word creation. The whole creation groans and travails together in pain, waiting for the adoption and the releasing of the body. Now, the creation groans, why? It is under the curse. The creation groans, waiting for the adoption of the, of the body, that is, of God's children, their body be redeemed, given a body like unto the Lord. And yet, that redemption, the moment you get saved, uh, though it includes the soul and the body, yet is not complete. And what we have here in the book of Revelation, remember our, our illustration of a long while back? The whole thing of Revelation deals with the Lord putting in effect and enforcing his title deed to this earth. In other words, kicking the squatter off. You remember that phrase? Getting rid of the old squatter. He has no right on this, uh, on this earth. And yet he is the prince of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air and going to and from there. The Lord's saying you don't have any legal right. The Lord Jesus in Revelation 5 is seen to have the only legal right as the ruler, the rightful ruler of this earth because of, the, of his creation and because of the redemption that he purchased by the shedding of his blood on the cross. So here they're praising the fact and rejoicing in heaven that the kingdom of God has come. They're looking now and in heaven seeing that that kingdom will be established even as our Lord promised it. That kingdom, what a beautiful thing to read about in, in Isaiah 11 and also in Isaiah 35. Oh, what will take place. All those beautiful expressions, desert blossoming like the rose and the child playing on the cockatrice den and, and the lion laying down with the lamb. Oh, what a change is going to be. And, and, and these in heaven are rejoicing. Why? In, their, in that vision they're saying, oh, uh, God, your kingdom has come and you're going to establish that reign upon this earth. That shouting ground, not only for folks in heaven, but folks on earth who believe God's word. I want to point out one other thing about their praise. John said, I heard a loud voice. You know, we're too quiet, folks. We're too quiet in our life about these glorious, eternal promises and provisions of God. Go out to a ball game, hoop and holler like a bunch of Comanche, Comanche Indians over nothing but some fella with an inflated piece of hog skin under his arm run up and down a patch with white stripes over it and people jump up and down to hoop and holler. And then we come to church and act like a bunch of petrified Indians, you know, just on the totem pole. And yet what we're here about and what we're believing is that promise of God, the establishment of his kingdom, the completion of his salvation, the exerting of the power of his anointed one. And that's what they praise him for. Look at verse 12, uh, verse 12 and you see the plaint. I call it the plaint, P-L-I-N-T, and it simply means an audible utterance of sorrow, a lamentation. The plaint of verse 12. And the verse reads like this. And they over, and verse 12. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. While there's rejoicing in heaven. There is terrible fear and wrath upon the earth. This very point here I think seems to coincide with uh, Revelation 9, 1 and the sounding of the fifth trumpet where John said he saw a star fall. And we saw when I when we studied that with you, the word is fallen, star fallen from heaven. And there followed great and terrible judgment. Heaven weeps, I believe. And that is, th that's this word plain, a lamentation, an, a, an audible uh, pronouncing of woe and terrible sorrow. And I think I can hear in that a tear. Heaven weeps, heaven weeps over the inhabitants of the earth who are going to have to go through all this terrible, terrible, terrible time of the last three and a half years of those seven years of tribulation. Oh, what a lamentation, a weeping in heaven. And I think it 
is well for me to say this. The Lord does not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, Scripture says. When Jesus looked at Jerusalem who had scorned him, spurned him, rejected him, and he pronounced that terrible judgment upon the city that would be destroyed, the Bible said as he looked over that city, he wept. He wept. Oh, how sorrowful he was that judgment was coming. You know, when you look at men and women without Jesus Christ, it all make us weep. To realize that if there are people right here in this audience tonight, if you have never received Jesus Christ, man, every man and woman who saved this house ought to be crying their eyes out over you. What are we weeping every day of our life and school and the job place? Weeping in our hearts because men and women are really going to experience eternal judgment of the fires of hell forever and forever. I got to close. You've been patient. Look at verse 11 and see the power, the power. The Bible said at verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death. In other words, here's the, here's the basis for overcoming Satan. You want to overcome the devil in your life? Here it is. Listen to it. Number one, they overcame him. Here's the fundamental basis. By the blood of the lamb. All of our victory is based upon the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We have no victory outside of him. Secondly, the word of their testimony. That is the audible outward avowal of their faith in Jesus Christ. And again I say, we are too quiet. We're not audible. We're not vocal in our testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ. Most of us would tremble in our shoes if we thought tomorrow we had to tell somebody down the job or in the office classroom that we're a child of God, we've been born again, the Lord Jesus lives in our heart. Ah, no wonder we're overcome by the devil instead of overcoming him. In other words, we're intimidated by the devil and by the world and the, and the circumstance around us. How we need if we're going to overcome the devil, I guarantee you, tell people about your faith in Christ. Give them your testimony. It's difficult for some of us to even give testimony in church, much less out there where the world doesn't want it. I mean, you can stand up here in church in testimony time, and, and we ought to. We ought to praise God more. And folks, I want to tell you that. We need to do that more. We ought to stand up as another. Praise God for the biscuits not burning. Praise God for being saved. Thank God for still being alive. We ought to be vocal, audible in our praise of God. And that defeats the devil. As long as they can keep the child of God mum and silent and quiet, listen, he's got, a, he's got free run in this country of ours. Not only that, but they overcame him as a result of this statement. And they loved not their lives unto the death. You know what these folks were committed to? They were not committed to the preservation of their lives. They were committed to the propagation of, of the truth of God. Like Paul who said, we counted not our lives dear. We died a long time ago, Paul said. And yet, you know what most of us care most about? Preserving our life. I mean, preserving our, uh, you know, our acceptance. We don't want anybody to turn us down, think we're kind of screwy upstairs or got a few, you know, grains short of a full cob. And, and so we're preserving that life of ours. Yet these, they did not, listen, they didn't count their lives. They committed their lives. And that's what the word love means. They loved not their lives unto the death. They weren't in love with their lives. They were in love and committed to the Lord. And finally, and I don't have time to deal with this, the persecution, the final note, at verse 13 through 17. I do, I, okay, will you let me point out one strange thing to you here? I'm going to anyhow. Some of y'all sound asleep now. You would know whether I presented it or not. All right, let me ask you to look at this. Watch this. In these verses, there's a strange saying. Uh, the woman who is in travail, that is, labor pains. Uh, the woman here is seen, believe it or not, in her post-labor pains. Strange. Here is a woman, representative of Israel, who had her birth pains 2,000 years and more after the child was born. Odd? The prophet Isaiah thought it was very odd too. 
Look one other time in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 7 and 8. And before Israel is restored to their land as God promised them in full, before Israel is restored in faith and in belief, they're going to go through some terrible labor pains. Watch what Isaiah says in chapter 66, verse 7 and 8. Here's something very strange. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before she had a labor pains, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Same thing this woman is in Revelation 12. Who hath heard such a thing, Isaiah said? Who ever heard? Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? Yes, indeed. For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, you've often heard that statement, and it usually it's applied to the church, and the Christians say we're going to have to travail before I have anybody saved. That is not the original meaning of that statement. It refers to Israel. And it refers to the tribulation, the birth pangs. And that's what this tribulation is. It is the birth pangs of Jacob's people, of Israel. And now 2,000 years and maybe more. We don't know when, but at least uh, close to 2,000 years now. Since that man-child was born and the seed came through Israel. Now they're going to begin to go through the labor pains. And a nation will be born in a day. That nation, God said, would be the glory of the nations of the world. And out of it will flow the blessing of God to all the families of the earth through that nation that indeed the woman represents. Well, I hope you've gotten a hold of a truth tonight. Let me say this. Satan is a defeated foe. Now, he runs around like the cock robin of the roost. And he may roar, bud, and you think he's the king of the jungle. But I got news for you. He can make a lot of noise, but he's been defanged and declawed. He can make a lot of racket and scare you out of your shoes, but he's, he's already, let's use our country expect, already whooped and don't know it. The truth is the devil is defeated. And what, listen, one day that very judgment that our Lord has predicted will come to pass as he is cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. What one word of warning. All those who follow him, all those who live in their life rejecting Christ will go to the same eternal lake of fire where this defeated foe goes. You think you're winning without Christ? You're a loser and don't know it. It's not the Christian who's the loser. It's the man who has refused Jesus Christ. The ultimate outcome will be victory as God has predicted. Let's bow our heads to pray and stand to your feet as we pray together.